We're going to be um, studying this morning from actually several chapters in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 13 is what I had Chris read to you this morning. And we're going to actually look over the next few weeks, maybe two, maybe three weeks, um, we're going to look at chapters 13 through 25 as a whole unit. And the reason we're doing this is because we've come to a section in Isaiah that the focus has turned. And what I mean by that is in Isaiah chapter uh, 1 through chapter 12, the focus has been on the visions and the oracles that God showed Isaiah concerning Judah and Jerusalem, concerning the southern kingdom of the house of Israel. And it has been about the, the charges that God has brought against them as them rebelling against Him and walking away from them and serving other gods and worshiping other things in the world. And, and so He's going to bring His judgment against them in the form of the Assyrian Empire that's going to come and basically wipe out all of the northern kingdom, Israel, and then all but uh, 10% basically of the southern kingdom. And so judgment is coming. First it comes through the Assyrians, and then finally it comes into Judah through the Babylonian Empire. And we'll, we'll get into some of that hopefully here in just a little bit. But this week I'm just going to basically focus on two small points from the chapters of 13 to 25. And so it may seem like it's a little incomplete, but let it build over the next few weeks, and, and I think that you'll see the gist of it. But in chapters 13 through chapter 25, basically, you could go a little before, a little after 25. But basically, the focus changes from Judah and the southern kingdom of Israel. And it focuses on the surrounding neighbors of Judah and Jerusalem. And so it focuses on all of the neighbors. If we were to pull a map up, and I wish I had done that, but I didn't. But if we were to pull a map up, you would see that basically um, Judah and Jerusalem sit in the center and he addresses all of the nations to the south, all of the nations to the east, all of the nations to the north. And he basically just deals with all of these nations. And he gives judgments concerning these nations. And so I want you to look with me just so that you can see it for yourself. Um, Isaiah chapter 13 verse 1, it says, This is an oracle, or some of your versions may say a burden. So basically it was a vision that Isaiah saw that, was a, a hard vision to take. It was a burden when he looked at what was going to happen to these surrounding neighbors. The same way that he said in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1, whenever he said this was a oracle or a burden or a vision concerning what he saw about Judah and Jerusalem. It was tough to have to see these things, that the judgment of God was coming. And I'm going to tell you, whenever we read in the Old Testament and we see some of the things like, infants being dashed to pieces and, and women being raped and men being slaughtered and beheaded and, uh, and so many atrocious scenes that we see. A lot of us look at it and go, how in the world can God do things like that? And the problem is that you and I don't understand the seriousness of our sin and rebellion against our Creator. And ultimately, the judgment of God on sin is seen. The seriousness of God's wrath on sin is seen as we look at these judgments. But in um, Isaiah chapter 15 verse 1, it is an oracle that concerns Moab. So we're looking at another nation that is just east of, um, of um, the, um, the southern kingdom of Judah. 
And then in chapter 17, verse 1, we have an oracle concerning Damascus, which is a little northeast of uh, the southern kingdom. And then in chapter 19, verse 1, we basically deal with Egypt, which was um, southwest, if you will, of the, the southern kingdom. And then if you were to go to 21, verse 1, we have an oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, which again addresses Babylon in this. And then in 22, verse 1, we have an oracle or a burden concerning the valley of vision. And we're not certain where this location actually is. There are different um, uh, viewpoints to this. But still, it's a, about a judgment of God that is coming on a particular place. And then in 23, verse 1, we have an oracle concerning Tyre, which was a little city that was just due northwest of the uh, southern kingdom of Judah. And then um, in 24, verse 1, I want you to notice, he ends up, behold, the Lord will do what? Empty the earth and make it desolate. So basically, in chapters 13 through 25, what we have are these judgments that are coming on all of these surrounding neighbors and nations. And there are reasons why he turns his focus from Judah and from his people to these nations. But he is still speaking primarily to Judah concerning these nations. Now yes, these prophecies will also go out to these nations as well, I assume. But for the most part, Isaiah was prophesying primarily to Judah. And so he wants Judah to be able to see these prophecies and these visions that he, that he has about the surrounding neighbors and the people around them. And we're going to answer that question probably next week as to why God does that. But this week, I just want you to notice that basically we're looking at all the neighbors and then ultimately God stretches His judgment out. He begins with Judah and all His people. And as you know, the Bible tells us that judgment begins in the house of God, right? It begins with you and I. And then it extends outside the walls to our neighbors. And then ultimately, it goes to the ends of the earth. And this is what we see in the whole of 13 through 25, if you will, is that judgment is coming ultimately to everyone on the earth. So I want to be able to see that since God is speaking concerning these neighbors and their judgment... What is it? Here's the question. If you've got an outline, if you, if, don't, if you don't have it, it's on Facebook. You should be able to pull it up on our Facebook page. But God wants us to see what is it that He wants His people to see concerning these chapters. So again, He's speaking primarily to Judah, right? What is it that God wants His people to see concerning the judgments of the nations that are going on? The first answer to that this morning is number one on your outline, God is absolutely sovereign. And what do I mean by that? I mean that He has supreme reign. He has ultimate power. There is not a single thing that takes place that God looked at and said, oh, I don't know what to do about that. He never wrings His hands and goes, ooh, I don't know how we're going to counteract this or I don't know what we're going to do about this. There is not a single thing that takes place that was not in the plan of God. And I know that's hard for us to accept this morning, but that is the truth. There is not a single thing that takes place that is not in the ultimate plan and the ultimate purpose of God for the good of His people and His glory. 
And so the first thing is that God is absolutely sovereign over every nation, over its leaders. That's right. God is sovereign over Joe Biden. It's important you hear this this morning in America. All right. He is sovereign over all of its people. All of them. Every nation, every leader, every people group, every person. God has ultimate power over every one of them. He has ultimate power over decisions that we make. He has ultimate power over paths that we take. And we'll look at that here in a minute. Look with me first at Isaiah chapter 13, verse 2 through 6, to see where I'm coming from. Notice he says that this is concerning Babylon. And he says, on a bare hill, raise a signal. Remember that was a banner, a flag basically. And it's calling people to a certain to rally together for a cause, for a purpose. He says, raise a signal and cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. Babylon was a place that was known for its um, majesty. It was a place that was known for its hanging gardens. It was the place of education. And it was a, it was a very prominent place on the earth, especially here in the Middle East. And he says, wave a hand for all these people to come over and enter the gates of Babylon. And then look at what he says in verse 3. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones. Uh, some versions may say my holy ones. He doesn't mean here that these people that are coming are a sinless group of people or are a people that follow Him and love Him. He's saying that I'm calling a group of people, I'm calling an army that has been set apart for my purpose. And this is going to be tough because this army that is coming is a very ruthless army. They behead people and stack the heads up on stakes. They skin people and hang it up on their wall for wallpaper. They dash infants to pieces if you were to keep reading. That's tough, parents, ain't it? I mean, this is a ruthless thing and God says... I myself, look what he says, I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to do what? To execute my anger. See, God knows how to use even the evil of this world. He knows how to take rebellious, sinful, hardened hearts and He knows how to direct them and turn them and He knows how to cause them to accomplish His purpose and His will in this world. Now keep going with me in verse 4. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. He's talking about the army that's coming. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. Who's doing it? God's doing it. He's sovereign over it. And then notice what He says in verse 5. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of His indignation. Notice how many times it gives credit to the Lord for doing this. And then it says in verse 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. So there again, we see God's sovereign over nations, over their armies, over the leaders that lead these armies, over who they attack, what they attack, what they do. And these are the same people that's coming in to attack His very own people. 
A lot of people would look at it in Judah and say, man, things are just falling apart. How many of you know things are not falling apart? Things are exactly the way that God means for them to be. All right, keep going with me. Look at Isaiah 13, verse 17 through 22. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. And that's exactly who I think 100 or 200 years from now of this prophecy is going to overthrow the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians are going to overthrow the Assyrians. The Persians, the, the Medes are going to come in and they're going to overthrow the Babylonians. And who says, and what, who does God say is doing it in verse 17? I am stirring up the Medes against them. They have no regard for silver and they do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and the pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never again be inhabited or lived in for all generations. And you know that's still true today? There was one person that tried to rebuild Babylon after the Medes destroyed it. You know who that was? His name was Saddam Hussein. He actually rebuilt some of the buildings and before he could inhabit it, you know what happened? We went in there. The Americans went in. They destroyed this place. They set up camp in this place, in this mansion that he had built in Babylon. And even today, it is still isolated. It is still deserted. They are trying their best to get tourists to come over. It is uninhabited. Exactly the way the Scripture said it would be. Is that not interesting? Let's look at a few other Scriptures. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 14 verse 24 through 27. This is an oracle concerning Assyria. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot. And his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. So it's talking about the Assyrians that were coming in to trample the people of God. But there's coming a day, even though God does it according to His purpose, there's coming a day when He's going to break this oppression as well. God is working every part of this. Do you see that? Now keep going with me in verse 26. This is the purpose that is purpose concerning who? The whole earth. This is just one piece of it. But it affects all of the earth, and it probably affects so many more ripples down the pond than you could ever imagine. And we don't even know it. The Assyrians don't even know it. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. Verse 27 of Isaiah 14. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? My friends, that's what it means that God is sovereign. It means that when He has a purpose, and He has a plan, it will go exactly the way that He had planned. And I know there's all kind of questions going through your head right now. Well, then why this and why this and why this? We'll get there over the weeks to come. But for the time being, just trust me when I tell you that one of the things that God wants His people to see from these chapters is that all of these things that are happening in the world concerning nations and their leaders and their peoples, who is in charge of it all? Every one of them. Y'all tracking with me this morning? God is sovereign. 
over every nation, over every leader, over every people. He is sovereign over all of them. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 16, verse 13 through 14. This is the word that the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, In three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude, and those who remain will be very few and feeble. And again, who's going to do this? God is going to do this. Look with me at um, chapter 19, verse 1 through 4. I'm skipping over some stuff, but I'm just trying to include as much of it as I can so you get the, the um, 40,000 foot view, if you will. 19, verse um, 1 through 4. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at His presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians. They will fight each against one another, and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel. They won't even have be able to choose wise decisions on which way to take Egypt. Their leaders won't have wise counsel and know which way to go. There's going to be civil war in this place as people argue and fight over things that don't even matter. Sound familiar? Keep reading with me. And they will inquire of idols and sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. And I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord of hosts. Who's doing this? God said, I will. I will. I'm coming riding. I'm doing this. I'm going to confound their counsel. I am going to do this. Now skip with me to the same chapter, verse 14 and 15. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion. And they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds, as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. Why? Because God purposed it, because God planned it, and I don't care how hard every Egyptian fights against it, you can't stop it. So what's the only thing God's people can do? Trust the Lord. That's all they can do. They can look to Him. They can look to His counsel. They can look to His guidance. They can ask Him what to do. They can seek His wisdom. They can look to Him. That is all they can do. But the problem is, you're going to see, especially next week, instead of looking to the Lord, you know who they look to? When the Assyrians are coming down to attack this nation, this nation tries to team up with this nation and this nation to stop it, and God said, are you an idiot? I'm paraphrasing that. And that's what we see happen is that instead of looking to the Lord, what they do is they look to the world. They always try to find some kind of solution around here to avoid the judgment of God. And can I tell you something, folks? You can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. What you can do is you can trust Him. You can trust Him. Look with me at another verse. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to what? This is a doctrine that the, the early New Testament church and the writers knew very well. 
They said it was not a mistake that Jesus was delivered up. God didn't look down and go, Oh, I don't know what we're going to do. They've got my son and I, I, I'm going to have to pay something. I'm going to have to... I don't know what I'm going to do to save him from this. That never happened. This was according to the what? The definite plan. What, is it, what does it mean when something's definite? This is God's sure plan. And it was His foreknowledge that... And notice who did it though. That you crucified. God took the hearts and the, the sinfulness of man and He turned it and He directed it so that it would accomplish His purpose. And it was for the good of His people and for His glory. And this is the way that God works. He's sovereign over all of us. And notice, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So here's what you see in this. You see that, yes, God is sovereign over all nations, all leaders, all people, all their decisions. The God is sovereign over all of it. However, don't think for one second that you're not responsible. See, there are a lot of people that take this doctrine and go, well, listen, if God is sovereign over this, then why am I held accountable for anything? Well, I want you to understand something. We're not saying here that God is a puppet master and that you have no choice in your decision. It's still your sinful heart and it is still your rebellious attitudes and your rebellious heart that God is taking and He is using. And we'll get to some of that here in a minute. But look with me at another scripture. Acts chapter 4 verse 27 through 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. So leaders joined together against Jesus. And whose plan was it? It was God's plan. Herod and Pontius Pilate. You remember what Jesus told Pontius Pilate? He said, do you not realize that I have the authority to set you free or to have you killed? You remember what Jesus said to him? You would have no authority if God the Father had not given it to you. And right now, all Pilate is doing is fulfilling the plan of God. Because of his sinful heart, his rebellious heart, he's fallen out. So both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, they're against Jesus to do whatever what? We're going to see the implications of this here in a minute, guys, but just stick with me. You need to understand this. There is nothing, nothing. Do you understand when Jesus said, not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from what? Apart from His will. Do you remember He said, you are worth more than many sparrows? I know we can't understand what God is doing a lot of times and how God does things, but you need to understand the biblical truth that God is sovereign over all creation, over all nations, over all leaders, over all people. He is absolutely sovereign and we are doing whatever His hand and His plan has predestined that this is what is going to take place. Ephesians chapter 1, I think it's verse 11. I think the Apostle Paul told us, and I didn't give Nathan this, so you don't have to search for it. But I think the Apostle Paul told us that that basically everything is working out according to the purpose and the plan of God. That He works everything according to the counsel of His will. There it is. 
In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things. How? According to the counsel of His will. What does He work according to the counsel of His will? Is there anything that's left out in all things? No. We don't understand it. We don't know why the pieces work the way they work, but you need to understand. The Bible teaches that God is absolutely sovereign over all people, nations, leaders, over all things. And the Bible also teaches, the second point, that we are responsible and accountable before God for all of our sin. I don't want you to think for one second that just because God is sovereign that that eliminates our responsibility and that we just sit back and whatever God does is whatever God does because that's not what the Bible teaches either. Let me show you. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9 and 11. Look what he says here. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemy. Who does it? The Lord does it. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west. I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong chapter. Well, it still still made my point. (laughs) All right, Isaiah chapter, um, where am I at? Hang on. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9 and 11. Look what it says. In verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make a land a desolation and to destroy what? It's sinners from it. Why is He doing it? Because sinners are responsible for their sin. Even if God orchestrates it and uses this so that it all works together for His plan and His purpose and His will, you are still responsible. It is still your rebellious heart. It is still your sinfulness within you and God is using it. We'll get to that here in just a minute. But Look with me at verse 11 of chapter 13. And I will punish the world for what? For its evil. And the wicked I will punish for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. So again, what we see in all of this, and we'll see it from chapter 13 all the way to chapter 35, we see two very key truths. God is sovereign over all things and man is responsible and accountable to God for all of his sin. And those are two key truths that we need to understand the Bible teaches. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 16, verse 6 and 7. Isaiah 16, verse 6 and 7. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is, of his arrogance, his pride and his insolence, and his idle boasting, he is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail, mourn, utterly stricken for the raisin cakes of Kerhashes. And so again, the point being is this. The reason why God is bringing this judgment, the reason why God is working this plan is because He's bringing it to hold sinners accountable for their sin. He uses this nation to come down and do it with this nation. This nation does it for this nation. He plays every leader in every part exactly the way that it is supposed to be played so that man is still held accountable and is responsible for all of his sin. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5 through 8. We have the Assyrian Empire here. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. He says, Woe to Assyria! 
the rod of my anger. In other words, I'm using you, the Assyrian Empire, to display my anger for sin. And look what he says next. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him. And he's talking about Israel here. Against a godless nation I send him. Against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil, to seize plunder, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But look at what it, verse 7. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not think so. In other words, the king of Assyria has no idea that God is actually using him as the rod of his anger. He has no idea that the staff in his hand is actually the fury of God. But notice what he says next. But it is in his heart to destroy. And you know how it got in his heart? Because he's sinful, because he's rebellious, and God took that heart just like He did with Pharaoh. Remember what God did to Pharaoh's heart? He hardened it. That don't make sense, does it? But God was working His plan, and He uses nations, He uses leaders, and He uses all the people of it in order to work His plan. And it will always work together for the good of His people, God is going to work good out of this for His people. And it will always work together for His glory because it's going to display His justice. It's going to display His righteousness over sin. It's going to display just how serious sin is and it's going to display... His glory is even displayed in wrath. And so we see the glory of God displayed in all of this. Look with me at another verse if you will. Uh, Go with me to Isaiah chapter 10, verse um, 12 through 13. When the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. Now remember, who was the king of Assyria? He was God's servant. He was God's anger too. He was God's fury too. But even though God was sovereign over the king's heart, Guess what God is going to do for the king's arrogant heart and the king's hardened heart and the king's rebellious heart? God is when the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion. In other words, when He's done using Assyria and the nation and this king for His purpose here, He is going to punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in His eyes. For He says... This is what the king of Assyria says. By the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples as one who gathers eggs that has been forsaken. So I have gathered all the earth and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. And then look at what he says in verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews it? (laughs) Or the saw magnify itself against the one who yields it as if a rod should wield him who lifts it? Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? So again, all I'm trying to show you is that from chapters 13 to chapters 25, We get the same repeating thing. God is sovereign over all people and all things. And man is responsible and accountable for all of his sinfulness. 
because it is still his rebellious heart. It's still his arrogant heart. But God knows how to take all decisions of all people. You say, well, what about free will? Well, yes, you have free will in a way. <laughs> Let me explain. The Bible tells us that before salvation, that you are dead in your sins. You are dead to spiritual things, right? The Bible tells us that we are blinded by the God of this age, which is Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I believe that is. We are blinded by the God of this age, which is Satan, so that we can't see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. In other words, what can a dead man do? I mean, you go up to a dead man and you kick him. Does that do anything? Why? Because there's no life. You need to understand, before you are a sinner, you only have free will to do one thing. Martin Luther called it the bondage of our will. Your will is in bondage. What is it in bondage to? It's in bondage to serve you. To serve your desires. To serve everything that makes you happy and what you want. You are dead to the things of God. You are dead spiritually. And so the free will you have is the free will to live out a sinful and rebellious heart. It does not mean that you are going to be as bad as you could be, but it does mean that you have a heart within you that is dead to God and you will choose to do things that are not God-honoring and are not God-glorifying. Those are the decisions that you will make. God will in turn take that free will and He will harden hearts and He will shape hearts. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 20, I think it is, I can't remember exactly where it is, but He said, the heart of the king is in the Lord's hand and He turns it whichever way He wills. And He takes that free will, even though it's not free, because if it were free, you could serve either yourself or you could choose to serve God. But until God opens your eyes and gives you new life, this is the reason why the Bible says you must be born again. You need life. You need eyes that can see. You need a heart that wants to serve God. You need desires and passions that want to serve God. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 30, I believe it is. And until you are born again, the only free will you have is to serve sin. After you are born again, now your will is no longer in bondage. Now, yes, you can choose to honor and glorify God, or you can choose to serve the flesh, one of the two. But the point is this. God is able to take every decision of every person in the will that they do have, and He is able to work it and turn it, and every single decision that is made, every choice that is made, is according to His plan in some way or another, because His plan includes all of you. And so in one way or another, every decision, every choice that is made is according to the purpose and the plan of God. And we are all responsible and accountable to God for our sinful actions, and that's important. So in closing, what kind of implications can we draw from these truths? you got your notes. Look at the first one. If God is sovereign over the nations and its leader and its people, and do you believe that? Do you believe that the Bible has proved that to you this morning? So if that is true, here's the implication. Then we should pray for the hearts of our leaders and our people. Right? Because God has the power to not only harden a heart, but He has the power to soften a heart. 
See, we spend too much time griping about Joe Biden. If we spend a little less time griping and a little more time praying, you might actually have a chance of changing something because that's where the power is. Come on, can I get an amen from somebody this morning? I mean, that's the truth. No, I'm no different. I turn on, or I don't turn it on. My wife goes to sleep with Fox News every night. She loves Tucker Carlson. She has to go to bed with him every night. But anyway, I didn't mean that in a bad way. I'm just saying. (laughs) She loves him. And so I'll come in there and get ready to go to bed and hear Tucker or Hannity or somebody's on, and I get caught up in the drama, and I'm sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, how in the world did we get this guy as a leader? I mean, I'm just, it just drives me crazy. And then I sit back and I remember that this is exactly why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter, one, chapter 2, verse 1 through 2, he said, first of all, Timothy, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Why? Because God is sovereign over all people. Therefore, pray for them. Why? For kings and all who are in high position. What's it going to do, Paul? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in what? What does Paul understand the answer is to a nation's leaders and them leading us in the right way? That we pray for them. That we pray for them that we pray that God would turn their hearts, that we pray that God would save their souls because if God is sovereign over nations, leaders, its people and their hearts, if God is sovereign over that, then what is your most powerful weapon? Prayer. Prayer, guys. We need to pray for them. Listen, guys. I believe wholeheartedly this morning that we can pray for Alabama fans and God can turn their hearts. I'm just joking. But you get my point, right? I, tr- I believe wholeheartedly this morning that God can change the heart to where it is supposed to be. Now that is the absolute truth. And if that is true, we should pray for our leaders to have obedient hearts so that, they, so that we might be able to live godly lives. We should pray for people to be drawn to God and given new hearts that honor Him. How many of you have somebody in your life right now, in your family that you love, that the truth of the matter is they don't know God. They don't really have a heart for God. They are lost as, what do you say? Last year's Easter egg. You know what your best chance for them is? God said, or Jesus said, no one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws Him. No one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws Him. You know why? Because God is sovereign over your heart. So you know what your best course of action is? Pray. Pray for your family, for your lost loved ones. Pray and pray and pray that God would change their hearts. That God would give them a new heart. Imagine what your prayers could actually change in people's hearts. Just think about that for a minute. You know, the Bible tells us, I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to try to make these last ones quick. But the Bible tells us that the prayer of a righteous man has great power in its working. And then it gives us an example. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. You know what that means, don't you? He's a sinner just like me and you. And yet, 
His prayer was that it would not rain for three and a half years. And guess what happened? And then he changed his prayer and he prayed that it would rain. And guess what happened? That's the example James gives us. He says there is great power in the prayer of a man who is right with God by faith through Jesus Christ and he prays fervently is what that Bible says. He prays fervently. There is great power. Can you imagine the hearts that could change in your family, in your loved ones, in your workplace? That's right. Your bosses. Can you imagine the hearts that could change through the power of prayer? Since God, if it's true that God is sovereign over every nation, over every leader, over every people, over every heart. Second point. Second implication from this truth. If God is sovereign and uses every choice, then we may, if He uses every choice that we make in our lives for, the, for His purpose in this world, then our every choice matters more than we realize. I want you to think about that for a minute. We just celebrated homecoming not too long ago. They were fixing to shut the church down. Only a handful of people. No, they did shut the church down. Set empty for a few years. The owner of the building decided, might as well not sit there. I'm going to put hay in it. The day he's delivering the hay to the barn before he gets there, lightning strikes the steeple and he says, Huh. Maybe not such a good idea to put hay in this building. Can you imagine what would have happened if he had have just made the choice to just go on and put hay in the building? And they never had a handful of people that decided to start a congregation back up. Do you understand that I would probably not be a pastor today unless God sovereignly worked it somewhere else? Now we know that. But I'm just talking about the... The, the course of events that took place to get each and every one of us here to where we are today. Every choice you make, do you think for one second that that man thought that that choice was going to affect, was going to make ripples down the pond that he would never have a clue about? Y'all tracking with me? Every choice that you make you don't understand and you don't see how by the sovereign power of God it is connected to a million other events that you may not ever know anything about. If that is true, and I believe it is, I believe the Bible teaches it, then we would be wise to spend some time praying for wisdom about every decision, right? Do I buy this car? Do I buy this house? Do I do this? Do I do that? Whatever. And I'm not just talking about financially. I'm talking about every decision. For that man, it was whether or not to put hay in a building. Is there anything wrong with putting hay in a building that's been closed for the last three or four years? You own the building. It's yours. You can do whatever you want with it. Right? And yet, he had two choices. I can either continue my plan to go this way, or I can choose a different plan. He saw fit to look to God and say, I think God is speaking. I'm going to listen to this, and I'm going to make this choice. And as a result of that, he has no clue because he's gone today. 
he has no clue the amount of ripples that have been affected by that one decision. Y'all with me, right? I got to get going. Come on. All right. If God is sovereign over everything, people, events, and sparrows falling from the sky, then as Christians, we should stand firm in faith knowing that God is always working all things together for our good and for His glory. And I give you some scriptures there to look up for yourself. The point being is that God has been telling Judah all alone in the middle of all this judgment, I'm going to purify you. I'm going to sanctify you through this. I'm going to be like a refiner's fire and I'm going to remove things that seem important to you, but you need to understand they're not important to you. I am important to you. And God is saying there's coming a day that I'm going to give you rest from it. I'm going that joy really does come in the morning. If God is truly sovereign over every single event, this is the reason why the Apostle Paul wrote Romans chapter 8. You do understand that Paul didn't just pull this stuff out of a hat somewhere and say, you know what, Romans 8.28, that sounds like a good place to put, for God works all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose and those that love God. No, you know where he got that doctrine from? Old Testament. He has seen it over and over again about how every event that took place, God was always working all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So what does that mean for you and I? If we can see the evidence of it, you and I should be able to stand firm in faith no matter what the trial is, no matter what the darkness is, to know that Yes, I don't understand this. I don't know why things are happening the way that they are. I, I, don't, I can't make sense of this world. It looks like everything is falling apart. But I know the truth that the Bible teaches me about God. It teaches me that God is absolutely sovereign over everything. And it teaches me that He is always working it all together for my good and for His glory. And I can stand firm in faith knowing that that is true. That's the reason why the Apostle Paul said before this verse in Romans chapter 8, he said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed in me in that day. He understood that God was always working and that it was going to work together for God's glory, for His good in a way that can't even be compared to the trials and the darkness that we deal with right now. When everything looks like it's falling apart, we can know that our sovereign God is working all things together for our good. And then the last one, this is it. God's sovereignty lets us know that we are not losing in a world that looks that way. Let me stop with that one for a minute. How many of you know that when Judah is going through this and they're seeing all this judgment and this nation is coming and attacking them and this nation is leading them into bondage and, and God is doing this and this and this, how many people in Judah looked at it and said, God, we're losing this battle. We're not winning. We're losing. Right now when you look at Christians in the United States, do you feel like we're winning? It feels like we're losing. But how many of you know that if God is sovereign, and I believe that He is, we are never losing even though it looks like we're losing. We are always winning. Even when it looks like we're decreasing, we're always increasing. 
So God's sovereignty lets us know that we're not losing in a world that looks that way, and it deepens our worship, especially during times of deep trouble. It deepens my worship. See, a lot of people say, yeah, I don't really need to know doctrines about sovereignty of God and responsibility of man, and I don't need those biblical truths. Do you want to worship God for who He is? You want to deepen your worship? You need to understand that truly, as Jesus said, not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from His will. And you are worth more than many sparrows. So you better believe there's nothing that happens to you. Now, did he say a sparrow will never fall from the sky? That's not what he said. But you need to understand, even if you do, and even if he does allow harm to come your way, you need to understand you are worth more than many sparrows. And if a sparrow don't fall from the sky apart from his will, neither will you. God is sovereign over each and every one of us, over all things. And you are still responsible for all of your sin. But let it deepen your worship today to know that He sovereignly planned that He would send His Son to die for you. And that He would save you from His coming judgment, from His coming wrath. And that's the good news of Isaiah chapter 13 through Isaiah chapter 35. However it speaks to you this morning and however the Lord is, um, whatever truth He shared with you, maybe you just want to, Pray to Him and just give Him thanks and ask Him to help you stand firm in, in whatever it is you're going through. Maybe, maybe you, just, um, you just need to praise Him for who He is and just trust Him. Maybe you need to pray for your leaders. I, I don't know. Maybe you got lost family members that you need to be reminded that God, you are in control of their hearts. God, turn it. Change it. Make it new. Open their eyes. Remove the blindness. Whatever it is. There's a truth in this message for you today. And it's up to you to apply it to your life.